Welcome to Overthinking in Your Underwear. This is Lindsay, and this week I'm overthinking why I'm obsessed with Monica Lewinsky. And maybe that's shocking to you, or maybe it's not. Maybe you are too. We'll get into the whole details and story of where my obsession with Monica began um, in just a second. But this whole pod is really about shame and how shame shapes us, how we can own our origin stories and how we can flip our narrative and really be the one that takes control of who we are. So we'll get into Monica in a little bit, but I've been overthinking shame this week and it's a tough one. The difference between, and this is from Brene Brown, and we get into this a little bit later too, I should just say now almost everything's from Brene Brown, right? The difference between shame and mistakes or failure is shame is more I am bad, where a mistake or a failure is, whoops, that was bad. I made a mistake. I know I can correct it the next time, where shame, you sit with it and you really feel the effects. It permeates you. And maybe it's on an internal level. Maybe you're getting the messages from the outside. Maybe you see other people looking at you or giving you the message of you are bad. Maybe it's a public shaming, which we'll get into, or maybe it's something that's internal and everyone else is giving you the message that you're great, but something that happened or something something you did that's a secret, something about how you are raised, you carry this shame with you that makes you feel like you are bad. So there's sort of this internal shame, or it can be messages externally that are giving you this feeling of I am bad. And that's really what shame is. And there's there's many definitions of shame, Lots of ways shames comes about, but it's really this feeling of I am bad. When we think about it, or when I think about it at least, there's some cures for shame in shadow work. I don't know how much you know about shadow work, but I did a lot of shadow work when I was going through some personal growth journeys. There's a, I see a lot of shadow work on TikTok, a lot of people doing shadow work workshops and workbooks. There's a really great book called The Dark Side of the Light Chasers that breaks down shadow work in a really easy, explainable way. It's by Debbie Ford. I highly recommend it. But basically shadow work is, the root of it is, we all have dark sides, shadow. We all have light sides. We all know the light sides, right? I'm great. I'm funny. I'm creative. I'm smart. People like me. I'm a good listener. And we all have dark sides. Some of them our friends could point out and say, she's always late. She isn't a great listener. She is cheap. And some of them nobody knows about. That's our shadow side. It's the darkness. What shadow work really tells us is... You can't have the light without the dark. And there's nobody that doesn't have both sides of themselves. And part of being a fully integrated person who lives and loves their self-worth and stands fully in their self-worth, knows they have the dark, knows they have the light, and, and is okay with both parts. So it's a good way to get away from having to be perfect kind of this dichotomy of good, I am good, and I am bad, which I think shame can kind of come from. And if you are a perfectionist, which a lot of overthinkers are, you can make one wrong move. I talk about drinking a lot. 
having a night out drinking too much and the shame that you feel the next day about acting outside of your character or embarrassing yourself or whatever it is. And that feeling of shame, which is something that I used to experience a lot. And I would feel that feeling of I am bad. Well, shadow work would tell you, you're not bad. You're not good. No one is one thing. No one is perfect. No one is terrible. That was one side of your personality. That one side of my personality is a terrible drinker. And I chose to stop drinking. But (laughs) um, the shadow work really helps you, I think, deal with the shame. So I just wanted to give you a tidbit up front, an exercise or some advice on how to work through the shame. We're going to get into it more too. And some overthinking on why I love Monica Lewinsky. All right, ready? Let's overthink it. Two stories, two very different paths of shame. So this week, we're going to go through two incidents of public shaming, which garnered very different outcomes. But I think there's something we can learn from both and about how shame affected the lives of the women in these stories and about how shame shapes us. The first story is that of Swiffer Girl. Now, if you're like me, you may not know anything about Danielle Miller, a.k.a. Swiffer Girl. I didn't know anything about her until I watched the documentary on Hulu called The Age of Influence. You guys, you got to watch this. It's really good. They kind of go through moments in pop culture history that kind of caught us, moments of the last you know, two decades. And this one I'd heard nothing about, which I was surprised because I thought I was pop culture savvy. So... This story is about Swiffer Girl, whose real name is Danielle Miller. So let me give you a brief rundown of the story of Swiffer Girl. Danielle grew up in New York in the late 90s, early aughts. She was the daughter of an affluent family, grew up like actually in Manhattan. And when I lived in New York, whenever I met anybody that was like, I actually grew up here in Manhattan, I felt like they were an alien. Like no one was ever actually from Manhattan. Those were always the most like extraterrestrial people to me. But Danielle was one of those people. She grew up in an apartment a block away from Central Park. She went to this prestigious school called the Horace Mann School. It was a private school. Um, So kind of think gossip girl, right? So at about the age of 13 or 14, Danielle sent an explicit video of herself with a mop, a Swiffer, to a boy she had a crush on at the time. So the boy betrayed her confidence, sent this video to his friends. His friends sent it to other friends. Their friends sent it even wider than the school. And this is what is known as going viral. So Danielle became infamous and she became known as Swiffer Girl throughout the school, throughout New York, throughout everywhere. Like people in kids across the country were logging on to their AOL online accounts going, have you seen the video of Swiffer Girl? It really became kind of this cultural phenomenon. Maybe because I was older at the time, I had never heard of Swiffer Girl until I watched this documentary. But this is something that really caught on and followed Danielle, frankly, for the rest of her life. So Danielle becomes known as Swiffer Girl in school and widely, like I said, across the country. 
we, I mean, we know now there's a term called revenge porn, that this is a horrible betrayal of confidence. Things could have maybe been done at the time if we had been more educated, but that's not how our mindset was. That's not how Danielle's mindset or her parents probably, their mindset was back in when this happened. So Danielle's life progressed. She lived with this label. And what she says is that by the time she reached freshman year, she did what I think we would call today is she really leaned into it, okay? She really just decided to own this identity and drop the whole, you know, nice girl image that she used to have and lean into being the bad girl. She said, you know, if if you wanted to have a wild night out, if you wanted to get drugs, if you wanted to get wild, if you wanted to get crazy, you came to Danielle. And she really just owned this bad girl identity because why not? If you can't beat them, join them, right? Instead of trying to, if people are laughing at you, just laugh with them. Like she just kind of adopted this attitude. And throughout high school, this is who she was. She was the wild girl. She was the crazy girl because she felt like she had to be because she she really couldn't beat this label that had been attached to her. Throughout high school, this is kind of what what happened. And I think she got in, you know, various trouble, but nothing, nothing wild. She goes off to college at ASU and much to her dismay, people there are saying, hey, I heard about you. Hey, I saw the video. Hey, you're Swiffer girl. She can't get away from the label. She goes through college. She graduates anyway. What you're going to hear throughout this story is she must be a smart girl. So she graduates from ASU still carrying this label around from her and she moves to LA and she wants to kind of be a part of that Hollywood scene. And the way she was going to do it was be in PR, you know, she was going to be in public relations while she's trying to kind of work her way in there. She's partying, she's hanging out in that kind of early to mid um, 2000s vibe of partying and being kind of wild. Even there, people know who she is. And again, she's leaning into it. She's playing it up. Oh yeah, that's who I was. I'm the bad girl. I'm the wild girl. You know what I did? You know, she just kind of is like, what else can you possibly do besides adopt that persona and try to make it bigger, right? So during this time, Danielle is taking out loans in other people's names. She's taking out loans in her father's name. Her father has cut her off at this time. He's kind of like, I want to see what Danielle can do on her own. I'm not into paying her payroll. He's ta- She's taken out credit cards in her dad's name, charged up to, I think, like $200,000 on her dad's card. She's taken out credit cards in, other, in her friend's names. She's stolen from various people during this time. Well, she's also applied to Pepperdine Law School during this time. So in about 2016, she gets into Pepperdine Law School. So it's like, okay, maybe this is a chance for her to turn, for Nicole, for Nicole. So maybe this is a chance for Danielle to turn it all around. Maybe she's actually going to put her smarts and her brains to, to a positive thing. So maybe she gets into Pepperdine. And on the summer off of Pepperdine, she gets a clerkship with her dad, through her dad's connections. Her dad is actually a judge or or a lawyer in New York. He has lots of various connections. That's the other thing about this story is besides what happened to her at a young age, everything was pulling for her. She had affluence. She had parents that were supporting her. She had parents that were giving her all the right connections. And besides this horrible public shaming, Danielle had people that were constantly trying to reroute her onto the right path. Her dad gets her a pretty prestigious clerkship on her summer break from Pepperdine. She's 
working this clerkship. And in the meantime, she is up to her old tricks, racking up credit card charges under various identities. It catches up to her. The cops show up and arrest her for credit card fraud, uh, identity theft, that kind of thing. So law school is over for her, and she actually has to do a stint at Rikers Island. The part that like gets kind of juicy and everybody loves is that when she does her stint at Rikers Island, she befriends the infamous con artist Anna Delvey. You might know Anna Delvey from all those Netflix docs that came out. It was so juicy. Anna Delvey was also a con woman who racked up credit card charges under other people's names. She was this kind of fake German heiress. But apparently Anna Delvey would go to a hotel, give this fake German heiress story and kind of say, you know, my business manager is going to wire you money at the end of the month. And she would stay at these luxurious New York hotels for a month. And then the hotel would come to her at the end of the month and say, you owe us $50,000. And she'd say, oh, sorry, darling, and walk out the door and go to another hotel. Crazy kind of con, but she was good at it. And she was charming. And everyone really believed she was this German heiress. That's a whole other story. Anyway, they were in Rikers Island at the same time, and they became friends. I think Anna Delvey sort of later did kind of a Mariah Carey, like, I don't know her um, kind of thing when Danielle Miller came out and said, like, I'm really good friends with Anna Delvey. But anyway, that's just kind of like a juicy side point. Danielle's in Rikers Island, does a stint there, and really comes out. Danielle come does a stint in Rikers Island comes out just more affirmed in her con artist identity than ever. She's just like, this is who I am, which happens a lot when people go to jail, let's be honest. Like people don't come out reformed. They come out with just a new bag of tricks. So she comes out of jail and just credit card fraud, taking out loans in other people's names, being this lavish lifestyle on Instagram. She looks like an influencer of the highest order, you know, the Jaguars, the Chanel clothes, the spas, the vacations, but it's all under fake identities. So people think she has this glamorous lifestyle, but it's all on stolen money. So what finally caught up to her is Danielle applied for and obtained fraudulently over $1 million in pandemic related loans uh, over the course of the pandemic. So this on top of various other charges, including aggravated identity theft uh, included to a bank scam, three federal counts of financial wire fraud, and two counts of aggravated identity theft, all caught up to her. And Danielle was recently sentenced to about six years in prison. That is the story of Danielle Miller, aka Swiffer Girl. Danielle characterizes herself as a self-proclaimed con artist. I don't know what her reflection of her life is. I don't know if what happened when she was 13 had not happened where she would be right now. My guess is she would be in a very, very different place. I feel I feel a ton of sympathy and empathy for her about what happened to her. I think it's easy to look at her case and see her as the villain. Ultimately, we are all responsible for our actions and you can't look back at what she did at thir- what happened to her at 13 and say everything is forgiven. But I think we can look at it and say, look at how shame shapes us. Look at how that public shaming shaped Danielle into, into the woman she is now. Look at how she absorbed that public shaming. Look at how she absorbed that judgment 
and all of that finger pointing and took it as a reflection of who she is. She absorbed it and literally let it shape the person that she became and lived out that narrative to the point that she is in jail right now. She said, I am bad. I am bad. I am bad. And believed it so thoroughly. She says, I am a self-proclaimed con artist, says those words, and is in jail right now. I think it's such a powerful story about public shaming and how shame shapes us. After I watched it, I think even while I was watching it, I started thinking about another story of public shaming that had a very different outcome, Monica Lewinsky. If you don't remember Monica Lewinsky, maybe you're really young. I actually think I told my niece the story of public of I th- I actually think I told my niece the story of Monica Lewinsky not that long ago. She's 18 and she was like, "Oh my god, wow." And when you think about it, it's such a crazy story. The president of the United States having an affair with his intern. I mean, our TikTok phones would explode right now if that happened. It was so juicy. It was so scandalous. And the public shaming was on overdrive. I'll recap it just a little bit, though I know no one needs a recap for it. So what was really interesting to me about it at the time, and I know it was interesting to everybody, is that Monica's about five years older than me. So it happened, I was in college. And I remember thinking, I don't know what I would do if I was Monica Lewinsky. If I was a woman, a young woman in my 20s, and my older, powerful, attractive boss, leader of the free world vibes, was hitting on me, would I have the presence of mind to say, no, I don't think so. This is inappropriate. Um, This is probably something we shouldn't do. She was single, She was living in D.C., you know, by herself, which can be a very lonely prospect. And would you not take that attention and run with it? I mean, I remember thinking all of those things like, I don't know what I would do. And I know, look, it's hard to kind of like think of Bill as um, I I call him Bill. I call him Bill. Um, It's hard to think of Bill as like a sex symbol right now. But he was back at the time. He definitely was. He was like playing the sax on Arsenio Hall and everybody was like, oh, Bill Clinton. And it's funny. Another point is like he did that. And then after that, every president tried to have their quote unquote playing the sax on Arsenio Hall moment, like on every campaign trail presidents from then on were trying to do something cool, which I mean, Bill was maybe trying to do something cool, too, but you can't just casually try to do something cool. You're either cool or you're not. You're either Barack Obama or Bill Clinton or you're not, okay? You can't come out and be Mitt Romney and try to, like, just have your moment, okay? A little bit of political consulting advice for free. There you go. Okay, so Monica Lewinsky is working in the White House, and she's young. She's she's 23 or 24. She's working in the White House. She's working around Bill Clinton, <laughs> He starts flirting with her. She starts flirting with him. They both appreciate the attention. They start an affair. I won't even get into the lurid details of it, but they start an affair, okay? She starts confiding in her friend, Linda Tripp. Now, Linda Tripp, it's one of those vibes like she's 
30 years older than her. It's like all those things we see on TikTok where it's like when your work best friend is 30 years older than you, like that's what was going on here. Outside of work, they definitely would not have been friends. They wouldn't have been chatting on the phone late at night and going to the mall, okay? But they were. They were in this weird like, you know, cubicle cutie environment. She's telling her everything. So Linda Tripp really quickly understands what she has here and she starts taping everything Monica is saying. I mean, everything. And I'm still not really sure why Linda did it. Um, Maybe she was thirsty. Maybe she was bored. There's some like chatter out there that she really hated the administration. She did it because she was after Bill and Hillary and she was trying to take them down. So after she gathered as much information as she thought she should, could, she turned it over to Kenneth Starr. Kenneth Starr also really hated Bill and Hillary, and he opened an impeachment trial against them. And he subpoenas Monica to talk, to testify. She does not want to. She wants no part of this. She doesn't want to testify against Bill. She does not want to be a part of this. She just really digs her heels in. She gets her parents involved. Um, she gets their family lawyer involved. And the other side, Kenneth Starr's side, is really saying, You're, you'll go to jail if you don't. You will go to jail if you don't testify. Monica testifies. It's it's obviously a bombshell. There's the whole, I mean, the whole affair. There's the, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There's the cigar. There's the blue dress. There's the everything. I mean, it could not have been more scandalous, you guys. Within all of this, the minute it leaks, the minute we hear her name, the minute we see the picture of her hugging Bill in the crowd, the media goes crazy. And while it wasn't friendly to Bill, it was vicious to Monica. I mean, vicious, tearing her apart, tearing apart her looks, tearing apart her weight, tearing apart her character, calling her names from SNL to late night shows to to regular news. Everything was so harsh and hard on this 23 or 24-year-old woman. I cannot imagine what that did to her. When she, t- when she speaks about it later, she talks about how her parents made her shower with the door open because they were scared she was going to commit suicide. And that's so heartbreaking. It's one of the most excruciating public shamings I can think about experiencing and watching. After this happens, what Monica does is she moves abroad. She goes and gets her master's in London. She gets her master's in psychology and she disappears for a while, Um, maybe a decade, I believe. It's largely regarded that her public reemergence is around 2014. She wrote an essay for Vanity Fair titled Shame and Survival. And then in 2015, she kind of continued on this theme, uh, giving a TED Talk called The Price of Shame. That's probably the first time I remember seeing her. And it was so powerful. She looked amazing. She sounded amazing. Her Her message was so clear. It wasn't this, I am a victim and poor me. And listen to what happened to me and you guys should all feel terrible. That was not the message at all. The message was about cyberbullying and public shaming and why do we do this to people. 
she kind of says and breezes over, I was patient zero for public shaming back in the late 90s. And we all kind of go, "Uh uh-huh, we know exactly what you're talking about. And then she goes on to talk about you know, public shaming and cyberbullying and why we do it and the psychology behind it using all of this knowledge she has gained in the last over decade of her studying and her experiences. But she doesn't do it for this woe is me from this woe is me poor me kind of place. She does it from a really educated place. And obviously, she could speak on it more powerfully than anyone because of her experience and her education and her knowledge. It was such a powerful talk, and I instantly was obsessed with Monica Lewinsky. Monica moves on to go on various speaking circuits about this topic. She also does a documentary called 15 Minutes of Shame on HBO, which has a little bit of the same theme, again, focusing on other people, not focusing on herself. From there, she has been this advocate for other people going through shame, other people experiencing cyberbullying, Shame and what Brene Brown talks about when you're going through shaming, if just one person stands up and says, I see you, I hear you, I am validating your story, that means the world because you feel so alone when you're going through shame. So she's there to do that. These two stories, these two very different paths of shame. She didn't absorb I am bad. She stood out front of her story and directed it. She said, it's not your story, Bill. It's not your story, the media. It's not your story, anyone else. It's my story. I'm going to stand out front of it, and I'm going to own it, and I'm going to direct it, and I'm going to become an advocate for public shaming, and you guys cannot have my life. I'm going to stand out front of my story, and I'm going to direct my narrative. This is not yours. I am not going to become what you want me to become. I'm not going to be who you say I am. And I think it's such an inspiration, not to just people going through public shaming. Of course, if you're going through something like this on a huge level, a grand level, or even on a small level in your personal life, she is someone to look to. It's so inspirational in our everyday lives to say, if Monica Lewinsky can do this on this scale, then you can do it every day. Every day, you can take control of your story. Every day, you can own your story. Every day, you can shed old labels and define who you want to be. One last thing I want to leave you with is uh, Monica's Twitter bio or her ex bio, if you're Elon Musk, says, Monica Lewinsky, anti-bullying activist, TED Talk giver, Vanity Fair contributor, rap song muse, ex-beret model. Oh my gosh, I love that. It's like, if that's not owning your story and not letting someone define who you are and just not letting someone slap a label on you, but grabbing the label and saying, no, this is who I am and I'm going to stand out front of it. I don't know what is. So I love that so much. And it's why I'm obsessed with Monica Lewinsky. All right, you guys, thank you so much for overthinking with me this week. Until next time, wishing you All good thoughts.